You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What I found really interesting is, you know, when I think about his history, mm-hmm. he went from like 15-year-old homeless to like a self-taught artist and... Actually, in 2017, one of his paintings uh, sold for $110 million. It set the record for the most expensive painting by an American artist. I know, that's insane. It's a wild story, and I think that's what drew me to him in the first place. Yeah, and so in, in some ways, I think there's a little bit of truth to this quote from him. It says, I'm not a real person, I'm a legend. And the legend, of course, is Jean-Michel Basquiat. I feel like who art Ed? Who art it? Mr. Wood art Ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, the podcast where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. And as always, you can find pictures of the work being discussed on Twitter at WoodArted and the website whoartedpodcast.com. Joining me today, I have Mr. Todd Lieben, art teacher from Oak Park. Thank you very much for taking the time. Not a problem. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here too. I, I'm, I, I love talking to someone from Oak Park because like <laughs> when I was, when I was looking for a job um, teaching, Oak Park was uh, the one district that had the good sense not to hire me. Uh, that's tough. Oddly enough, I never, uh, when I was going through art ed and I pictured a grade level, um, yeah. middle school was not on my radar, but my placement for student teaching was in Oak Park. Isn't it funny oh. how those things happen? Yeah. There's yeah, so, so much. Yeah. I just got, so I got to know, you know, the staff and people there at that time and uh position opened up and there you go. But yeah, so much seems to be serendipitous. Like I had no intention of elementary when I started off and now like, cause you know, you, you know, we get certified K-12 and I pictured myself in high school all throughout the time I was in school. And then I, I found like just elementary, the kids are so fun. The energy yeah. is so fun. Love it. 
Yeah, I was um, a, a teacher's aide in an art classroom with my former elementary art teacher because I was I was doing summer maintenance wow. as my first job, and yeah. it was in the same school district I went to. So um, I had always kept in contact with my uh, with my art teacher, uh, Mrs. Alvarez from uh, the district uh, ninety two and a half. But uh, it was fun. I ended up as her teacher's aide, and that was with an elementary level. So I guess I always thought I'd be there, but middle school's been a good fit. <laughs> yeah, life's all it, – it's it's always about connections too because, like, I, I am where I am. The cooperating teacher when I was doing my high school placement, um, cooperating teacher was over at Nequa. Her kids went to school at Highlands where I teach now. And so, like, when I was interviewing, you know, like, I had – these different people who are making connections and they're like, Oh yeah, I know so-and-so over there. I'll put in a word for you and stuff like that worked out yeah, yeah. Like I said, really well. That's awesome. I mean, sometimes, I feel... go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say like, sometimes the universe seems to know what it's doing. It was just kind of like in line with the theme I saw with Basquiat. As I get into like his bi- biography, you'll notice like there are a lot of connections that come up. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And some that, uh, like with, uh, with Warhol, how he just kind of put himself out there too. I thought that was great. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I guess to start off, you know, we're talking about Jean-Michel Basquiat, the American artist became popular in starting in the 1980s, but he was born December 22nd, 1960, um, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, his background, Haitian and Puerto Rican descent. And, you know, one of the things that that I've noticed in looking at his biography is he was a smart kid from the early age, you know, like from four years old, he learned to read and write by four, like that right (laughs) there. That's kind of nuts. And his mom, his mom was very encouraging of his talent. So like she took him to the museums. I think he was like a junior member at the museum when he was like six years old. Um, And then when he was seven years old, he got hit by a car, broke his arm, had some other internal injuries and stuff. So he was recovering for a little while. And his mother gave him a copy of Gray's Anatomy, which is like that, that like medical textbook. Um, Uh, Yeah, oddly enough, enough, um, after reading that part of his history, uh, I very shortly after owned a copy of Gray's Anatomy. (laughs) Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I went out and searched it out. It was just one of those things where, like, when you're a fan, you wanted to search out all this other stuff surrounding it. So I got Grey's Anatomy and a one uh, um, one of my favorites. It's called the Symbol Sourcebook. So Interesting. Because, yeah, that was another one that was mentioned that he loved, too. So Yeah, and, and I, I think it's interesting when you think about, like, a, a seven-year-old reading a medical textbook, you know? Uh, yeah. But it, it showed up later in his work. We saw a lot of, you know bones and skeletal imagery coming through in his later work. So it clearly had an impact and, you know, studying anatomy, that is something artists have been doing for a long time. You know, used to be the cadavers were fought over by medical students and artists, you know, (laughs) like they were looking at, at how the body is put together. So his mom definitely nurtured him well. Yeah, she did nurture him him well. And, you know, I, I always got the sense reading that he was very close with his mother. And one of the, aside from getting hit by a car, the real major setback for him, I think, was when he was 15 and his mother's um, mental illness, you know, became sort of untenable, unlivable situation. So she she went to live in 
um, in a facility that could t- help to t- take care of her and get her the needs, like, you know, get her the help that she needed, but she was no longer able to take care of him. Yeah. You know? And so at 15, he was dealing with that 15 in the late seventies, he was getting into some trouble as a kid. Like some of it seems kind of funny. Like, you know, he got, he got kicked out of the alternative school for pieing the principal, um, which, you know, it's, it's disrespectful, but it seems, you know, generally harmless. Yeah. Um, and, and funny in a lot of ways, but, but at the same time, there were some serious struggles there. Like he was homeless for a little while as a teenager. He started a graffiti project, which I can't always recommend graffiti to people, but it is Correct. it is a way that people get their artwork out there. And that's how he built his name. He and a, he and a friend worked collaboratively. Uh, Al Diaz was the other the other member um, on the Samo project. So yep. with that, you know, it was just sort of they were they were spray painting and tagging in Manhattan where all the money is, where all the powerful and influential people are. And they, they were doing stuff. It was very text-based, a lot of words and phrases on, on buildings. Um, and then I guess after a few years, he got kind of tired of the same old thing. So he put an end to the Samo project with, um, I think it was just a tag that said Samo is dead. I believe that's that's my recollection. Too. I believe that was the phrasing he used. Yeah. yeah, and that was in 1980. And 1980 seems to have been a time where he started to really strike it out and make a name for himself as as a studio artist of sorts. Like he was using his art to support himself. As I said, when he when he got kicked out and dropped out of school, he he left home for a while. I think at first on his own, he ran away. And then I believe he got kicked out like when he was 17 and he, he crashed on friends couches and he supported himself by, by selling postcards and and things like that, that he made. And I guess he's, he, he even saw Andy Warhol in Soho and ran up and, and sold him a postcard. It's, but, it's great that he seemed to be like in the know, you know, and it's 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 interesting his progression because he definitely earned his place when you when you see his backstory and you know his boldness in working through and like we see with a lot of a lot of students, um, the ones that are that are really bright sometimes can end up in uh, you know with with their path uh, they get into some trouble later on. Well, it's like sometimes the choices people make they're they're they are their own worst enemies, Correct. you know. I think you and I have probably both known a lot of very talented people who did not, you know, make the most of those talents. But yeah. there are some people who who really do like reach out and and make the most of it and it's it's fantastic and and he was working hard. You know, he did not have the easiest path. He did not come from the family with the wealth and the connections to support him. He was a self-taught artist. He didn't go to he didn't go to Yale or SAIC. He, you know, taught himself a lot. And he was 
hustling. He was selling his art on the streets and apparently able to do that enough to make a living. And when he recognized somebody who could help him in that path, you know, he reached out. He he ran out to sell Warhol the postcard. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he started to get a little bit of press with the SAMO project. Um, that got him a feature in, um, oh, is it the village voice? Yeah. Yeah. And he got, he got like featured there and he was also on the, um, the public access show, which I always think of like public access as like, you know, when I was growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, nobody was watching public access, but in New York city, public access has a little bit larger of an audience. There's a little bit more to it. Um, and he was on made multiple appearances on the public access program TV party. And then he was also in that guy's, um, Glenn O'Brien being the host of that, uh, he was also in a film that he made called downtown um, 81. And that featured also like Debbie Harry from, um, from Blondie. Yeah. So he was starting to make those connections first with the Samo project. And then as his own artist and a personality on, on the the scene, Um, he actually sold his first painting to Debbie Harry. Um, I think it was like for, $400, maybe $200. I've seen different, but like, you know, his first painting supposedly was sold to Debbie Harry, which, you know, kudos to her for having good taste. (laughs) Probably, probably a really good investment. It was probably done just because she, she saw him like, Oh, here's the starving artist. And then, you know, paid that act of kindness paid off. Well, kindness or good taste. Probably a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. And so by like 1981, he's starting to be participating in group shows with people like Keith Haring, Barbara Kruger. Like, I just get the sense that in New York in like the late 70s and 80s, just like all the famous people were hanging out constantly. That's what it seemed like with all the stories told. Yeah. It really does seem like that. Cause, cause later on, I think he was like dating Madonna just before she became famous and you know, he's introduced to Warhol. They meet for lunch. Um, they became friends. I guess, like, it said that after that lunch, when he f- first met Warhol sort of formally and not just, like, running up to him to sell him something on the street, when they met for lunch, Basquiat went back to to his studio and painted a portrait of the two of them together. And then they actually did a series of paintings back and forth together. Um they were friends, like I said, basically till the end there. And, you know, in this time, he's starting to get that little bit more, um, a little bit more recognition and obviously a lot more money that comes with that as he becomes this internationally acclaimed artist. And I found it really interesting. He developed this habit of painting in expensive Armani suits, <laughs> which I, I don't know about you. Like, I, I find it kind of funny because on, on the one hand, it it seems just like bonkers for mm-hmm. to be like spending so much money on that. And at the same time, it feels like this really sort of punk rock kind of irreverent, like I'm going to take those signifiers of high society and quote unquote cultured elites. Yeah. 
and just like totally bring it down to to the level of like overalls and i'm gonna paint in that suit yeah and he's trying to change perspectives and i i I do agree that is that's such a punk rock move and uh you know he kind of was the underdog for the longest time but uh once again connections went out and uh he started to build really strong ones yeah so i think that that fairly well covers the context and and like i say the punk rock ethos you know that was the 1970s and 80s was the heyday of at least the sort of first wave of punk um and that was coming up in culture it's just like graffiti culture you know i referenced keith herring Mm -hmm. was another prominent artist rising to fame at that time and so now what i always like to do is a little bit of a deeper dive into one of the, the works and I guess I'll leave it to you. Which one would you like to do? When I first thought this, like the untitled skull piece from 1981 is one that's always sort of struck me. Same. But the 82 untitled, that's the one that set the record. Do you have a preference? Which one you'd like to focus it's on? It's odd. I, I, um, they're, they're fun to see together because you can see very similar yet different uh you know approach to it uh i actually uh i would love to talk about the untitled 81 cool perfect so i always like to start like what's jumping out to you about this piece what are you noticing i just think the energy that's in it i mean he's got a very strong use of complementary colors but there's a huge amount of layering going on here um i just i was always fascinated too with uh with oil stick and uh, knowing that he uh, had used those, of course, while I'm in, in college uh, um, at Illinois State, I had gone to the, the art shops a lot. And I'm like, I need to get these oil sticks because I just like the, the look of them, uh, the saturation of color that you could get with them. Uh, and I just felt like I had to had to dig in. But yeah, that's I mean, all this detail and it's his use of color. See, that's and, interesting because uh, I, I, I actually found oil sticks like really appealing to me until I started using them and then I really didn't like them. Um, well, but I to confess, it's not that I ended up using them strongly in stuff, but I just wanted <laughs> to experience the material. I don't, I don't think any work survived that was used with oil stick by me, but <laughs> I was inspired. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 it's definitely one I never mastered, although I, I focused a lot on painting. I was definitely better with the brush. Um, which surprised me because I started off so much drawing. Yeah. But when I'm looking at this piece, what, what I'm noticing is like, it, it feels like this head that, you know, what we see the eyes, the eyes almost look like they're looking in different directions. And it's this head that feels a little bit like a skull because of the fact that I can see like the teeth fully, you right. know what I'm saying? Like, it's like the, the jaw is almost like been sort of like, Take, it feels like a skull where where the the flesh is gone and I can see the teeth down to the roots and I see like the contours of that but then at the same time I still see the eyes in the eye sockets right. and so it occupies to me this odd space that is like it's like a zombie it's it's mm-hmm. it's it has a little bit of life to it but not quite all the flesh there you know, yeah, that juxtaposition is really interesting because when you look at the shape overall, you would think skull. And even yeah. though it's sort of like extended or stretched out that on the right side, that the heavy kind of point, not pointed, but that heavier curve almost looks like the back end of the mandible, too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but, but at the same time, like, like we say, there is the nose is still there, but at the same time, while we see that white line that defines the contour of a nose that, that is there and the red line that defines sort of the edge of a nostril, the black triangle has the feel of the empty socket. Not, yeah. not quite a socket, I guess it's a, it's a hole yeah. where like the nasal cavity would be, yeah. you know? So it, it's doing this weird thing where it's treading this line of both a skull and a uh, head with the flesh at the same time. Um, and as I look at this, that, that mark making, it's one of those things that, that often caused his work to be dismissed and panned by some critics mm -hmm. in his day and still today, probably because yeah. this is what, to use like the problematic term that was often used to dismiss his work, it, it was referred to as sort of primitivist, um, right. you know, where it, it feels raw. And I think, I think the better term is it's expressionistic, you I know, I, I had trouble with that term too. It was almost as if like when they described it, they were using it as a way to put him down. Absolutely. It's one of those terms that, you know, it, it's like, you know, he, he was a self-taught artist and, you know, that could be derisively put down as an outsider art. You know, he wasn't from the academy. He didn't have the formal training. Um, you know, we, we use so many different terms in, in art that I think are in some ways, in some ways purposefully and in some ways accidentally dismissive. Like, like yeah. I really don't like the term folk art because it's just, it's so broad as to be meaningless Right. And, you know, because folk art is just from any culture, really, and any time. But it always means, like, the things that the ordinary people are making, not, you know, the quote-unquote fine artists. Right. Which creates this high-low thing. And critics in his day talked about him in really demeaning terms sometimes. Um, I I've seen quotes where he was called a talentless hustler and street smart, but otherwise invincibly ignorant. Like, Whew. He was a lot of things. He was not ignorant. No, I think people tried to put him into a box too. You know, they tried to, they think, you know, oh, I know him. We got him pegged down. And I, I think that he was uh, too elusive for that. Well, yeah. I mean, like he, he, you know, when you, when you see like the biography of, you know, he was, he was a high school dropout and homeless as a teenager you don't expect to find he also spoke three languages fluently. Right. You know, um, but he, like for all of his faults and all of his problems, he was very thoughtful. He studied, he looked through like textbooks that he got from friends. Um, like while he was staying at their, their houses and in their apartments, he was reading their books and he was learning and he was taking things in from all different sources. Yeah. He, he was not only painting, but he was also like, he was rapping, he was writing, he was appearing in, in films. He was doing everything just all about culture and taking it all in and seeing what he could make and what he could put out there, which I think is really interesting about him. But yeah. back to this specific piece, I got to say one thing that I'm absolutely loving about it is the energy of the lines and the movement and the, the, like you said in the beginning, the complementary color scheme and like the, the intensity of those, those colors, 
which I, I find really impressive because you know as well as I do, complementary colors next to each other, it's going to look bright and bold and intense. But when they mix, mm-hmm. it gets muddy. And some of this looks like it's, like you said, it's layered. And some of this looks like it's layered on top. And some of it looks like it's almost like layered and then scratched away. Yeah. And to do that while preserving that intensity of of hue, it's really impressive. It's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm i also kind of drawn to uh, how he uses that uh, that orange to sort of frame out the, the right, you know, bottom corner and right upper corner. But then you see those colors reflected in the jaw. So it's that juxtaposition of almost that orange on blue and then, the, you know, the blue on orange. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I, I'm I'm really liking this for the the way he balances all of those competing things, whether it's with the color or the, like the suggestion of what that head and what that head or skull is, you know, it, it all seems to be this higher high wire act. Like I look at this and, and I think about like, how could I recreate that? And if I'm being honest, I don't, I don't know that I could, (laughs) you know, No, like, I think that all happens in the moment. You know, you problem solve and you work through and you just follow your vision the best you can. Yeah, and I, I like that there's this evidence of process, but like everything, it has this feel of, because of all of the lines, it has this feel to me like Giacometti's work where you can see the artist is on that quest to get to the right line. Yeah. But then he's got all of these that are clearly just like, a confident, it is one mark, that's what it is. And that was exactly the right mark, yeah. you know? Like inside of the head, there's this there's this mess of lines at, at the top. But then as you look down, it is much more just like one swoop for the, the nostril, one swoop to outline the jaw, you know? Yeah, and I also, I, I just love that use of blue, you know, that naturally sort of recedes um, in, the, in the, the focal point, which is the face. And I almost try to imagine that bottom right corner without all those blue scratches. Uh, and I feel like those are intentional and, and smart because if that was just an area of orange, I think your eye would go off of the, uh, the artwork. I think that kind of helps keep you in. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they do. Like it's 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 that repetition of the same color to balance it out. But then they're also like these marks that are pointing you back towards. Yeah, the they they initially seem sloppy, but it's are totally intentional. Yeah, it's um, it's that what sprezzatura to use the pretentious <laughs> art term, um, for a studied carelessness or a clumsy grace. You know he. His, his work is loaded with that where like at first glance, it looks so sloppy, but then like as you deconstruct it and look at what every line and every color is doing, it's, it's much more clever and much more purposeful than, than it might at first appear. Yeah. And really it's much more difficult to do because it doesn't devolve into, into like muddy mess and chaos. Agreed. And it's not, it's, oh, well, I, I want to say it's not formulaic in which, you know, we kind of think of different art skills that you would do to build up and layer. But uh, I mean, there's definitely a formula in his head for how he works, but uh, it's not a clear cut uh, path from start to finish. Yeah. Love it. Anything else you want to say about this one? 
Ah, oh, no, I just love it. <laughs> I'm trying to remember now that I see this one too, this may be one of the first ones that drew me into his work. Um, and I, I can't, you know, pinpoint for sure where I first heard about it, but obviously being in art ed, um, I'm sure it came across, uh, you know, my workspace at that point and got me intrigued, but. Yeah, I feel like this one is a, one of the standouts of his his body of work. Like I've looked at a lot of his stuff and he had a consistent style and, you know, all of it, like I say, the best I can, it, it feels like a high wire act because yeah. when you're layering that much in oil and, and everything like that, like it, it, it's, it's not always forgiving. Yeah, and as you look through the body of work, too, you do see that, you know, he did, you know, similar works uh, as you go by, you know, kind of a point, case in point to the 1982 one. But um, still, there's always one that just seems so much more refined and and ready to go to stand out. Well, yeah, the the 81 piece, I feel like it it's just better balanced than than the other one. Um, And I think it's largely because of the the heavier use of complementary colors. We see more of that blue and orange, yellow and orange color scheme. Yep. Um, and I think that's, I think like, you know, there's there's a little bit more weight to the warm colors in the 1981 piece, whereas the 82 piece is a lot more in the cool to neutral. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, I think that's, to me, that's what balances it out a little bit better. I- and I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the Yeah, There's the a joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, out of those three choices, uh, obviously for me, not, not the last one. Um, <laughs> but the other ones are kind of interesting. I mean... I, I think that his work and his uh, legacy is worthy of the Louvre. Um, but I, I think with his his attitude and his expression and how he went about living his life, um, I don't know. I feel like it needs to be in a New York club or something. <laughs> yeah. It just needs to be there to be celebrated and lit and just, uh, you know, have people feed off the energy. It should be out in the wild. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. It should be yeah. unleashed. Um <laughs> I, I I get that. I appreciate that. And I like that you don't feel confined by the structure of the, the phrasing of the question, um, which is totally in line with Basquiat to just be like, I reject your premise. I'm going <laughs> to substitute my own. Um, I like that. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to say this to me feels like a museum piece because it's gorgeous. I yeah. think it's 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 really nice to look at, and I think there's a lot to, like, it's visually pleasing right from the instant I look at it, and the more I look at it, the more I appreciate, and yeah. that's to me like what museums are all about is that artwork that you can linger on and look at and enjoy as well as learn from, and it should be preserved for everyone to see. Yeah, so. I would agree with that too, especially with his place in the you know uh, within art history too. Yeah. that it stands with all those other works too. Yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, the museums need a little bit of punk rock in them. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Although he was a rapper. So I don't know why I keep going to, I think that's like showing my own biases because I love punk <laughs> rock <laughs> because, cause he, he was in into it totally different, but also submersive and bottom up musical art form. 
Yeah, see, there we are trying to label them, and <laughs> it's not <Yeah>. sticking. <laughs> it's not sticking at all. It's not sticking at all. Um, much like when Blondie rapped. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> they did. I heard that, but I'm not they sure that, that I can go back and find it out. It was not great. It's not, not great. But uh, I think that's probably good for this episode on Basquiat. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. This was awesome. Thank cool. you. Thank you. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.